Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Nature Made Me a Freak, Man Made Me a Weapon edition. It's March 16th, 2017. On today's show, Logan is the latest and presumably last installment in the Wolverine series. It stars Hugh Jackman as the talented and brooding superhero mutant brought reluctantly out of retirement. Critics love it. Um, and uh, and then the songwriter Stephen Merritt and his band The Magnetic Fields were 90s indie rock darlings. They've made a triumphant return with 50-song memoir. We will discuss it with Slate's music critic Carl Wilson. And finally, what is it to be privileged? Who has privileged and who has the privilege to call others out for being privileged? We discuss a provocative essay from the New Republic magazine. Joining me today is Isaac Chotner, staff writer for Slate and soon to be host of his new podcast, I Have to Ask. Isaac, I am very excited to have you on the show and uh, almost more excited to hear your new podcast. Welcome. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. And we're joined by Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent. Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a thrill to have both of you here. I have to admit, um, Dana and Julia, of course, sorely missed. They're both at South by Southwest representing. Um, all right. Before we uh, dig in, Isaac, do we have some business? Uh, we do. Um, I want to tell you guys about a live show that the Slate Culture Gabfest is doing on Wednesday, April 19th in D.C. at the Hamilton. To get more information about this, go to slate.com slash live. For Slate Plus folks, at the end of this show, we are going to give them a list of books they have to read before they die. That's a little morbid. Hopefully not all the books will be morbid. If you want to hear that segment, you can sign up for it at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, Steve, that's business. What do you got? Thanks, Isaac. Okay, diving in. It's been called less a superhero movie than a Requiem or Unforgiven with Claws. Logan stars Hugh Jackman as the X-Men alumnus Wolverine. It's the series' final installment, presumably. (laughs) Never say never in that business. It's a brooding movie directed by the very gifted James Mangold, he of the movies Heavy and Copland. Mangold does his best to place recognizably human emotions at the center of a story of men and women with superpowers. In Logan, the Wolverine now lives in Texas, near the Mexican border, driving a limo for hire, caretaking Caliban, the albino mutant, and Charles Xavier, whose epileptic-like fits shudder the earth. Into their dreary, airless, and generally senescent world comes a young girl with mutant ex-childlike superpowers and adventuresome mayhem ensues. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip. Who's this? Just a guy telling you to get back in your nice truck, go play Okie Dickhead somewhere else. 
Hey, Carl. It looks like Mr. Monson hired some muscle. Looks that way. He's a friend of mine. Friend with a big mouth. I hear that a lot. And you probably hear this, too. More than I'd like. And you know the drill. I'm gonna count to three. And you're gonna start walking away. Yeah, right to this one. One. I have a lawyer now. Two. Three. Ah, ah. You all right, boss? You know the drill. Get the hell out of here. All right, well, Jamel, let me start with you. This isn't the first sort of mopey, serious superhero movie. Um, the problem with that mode often is that it kind of crosses the line between serious and self-serious. People think Logan really pulls this off. Did you? I think it did, and I think it avoided that self-seriousness by not... I mean, the movie is obviously about larger themes. It deals a lot with grief and regret and and violence and questions of what it means to be a violent person. And, you know, what it, it, it reminds me in a lot of ways of unforgiven in its general tone and mood. Um, but it's very much grounded in these characters. And what's a bit funny about it is that it takes the fact that there is this 15 year convoluted continuity of X-Men movies and strips it all away to the two most prominent characters in that series uh, Wolverine and Professor X and, and gives us the story that's really centered on their relationship um, and their history. And I think the thing I've told people who want or are interested in seeing the movie but have not watched the X-Men movies is that if you know anything about those two characters, you should be able to enjoy the movie without really having any background, which I think is um, a real strength of the film. Uh, and uh, in, in sort of its seriousness and maturity is, is a welcome change from, say, last year's Batman versus Superman, which was just kind of turgid and bad and, as you said, self-serious. When this movie was being billed a couple months ago, it was sort of as a serious superhero movie. And I think when most people hear that, you think some version of Christopher Nolan. And self-serious, I think, is a good term for for Christopher Nolan stuff, but just sort of self-important, too, that there would be a lot of moralizing. Um, this movie is, I think, a little bit too long the way Christopher Nolan movies tend to be, but it does not sort of have that overwhelming, overbearing self-importance. There are not as many conversations as you find in a Christopher Nolan movie about good and evil and what it all means. And the, the care, everything just seemed a little lighter. I think Jamel's really right to, to reference a Western because it did feel more like a sort of stripped down spare Western. Mm -hmm. Yeah, late in the day, you know, kind of the, you know, the mythology is starting to wear off and uh, saturated with grief and regret. Jamel, I have to say, I brought absolutely no background to this movie. I hadn't seen an X-Men movie, was not a huge fan of the comic book when I was a kid. It worked for me completely as a film. It's 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 beautifully made. Uh, Jackman is is mesmerizing, uh, heavy spirited, but mesmerizing. Uh, Patrick Stewart is terrific. Uh, Stephen Merchant, I was a complete surprise to me. I had no idea he was going to appear in the movie. He's terrific in it. I have to say though, it, it is for being so saturated in grief and regret. I'm not. I wasn't quite sure what they were grieving or or regretful of. Was that clear to someone who knew the deep mythology in the universe? Yeah, I think I think this is it, it's funny because it does the film does totally work with no background whatsoever. Um, but for those of us who have been watching the film series since you know two thousand one, if this uh, is when the first uh, X Men movie came out, or are familiar with the comics, 
um, kind of the the Wolverine uh, the Wolverine story, Logan's story is in part about someone who uh, is you know bred and and built to be a weapon, but is sort of but hates killing, does not like the fact that he is uh, he is proficient at killing, and it weighs on him and it, it burdens him, um, and I think that is what you know, Logan is struggling with in the film. Um, the movie makes reference to the fact that the X-Men are dead, uh, that they, that they all died one way or another. And so, uh, added to this, to, to both Logan's struggling with the fact of his, his lifetime of killing and the, the fact that his friends are dead. It's this other fact that Logan can't really die, or at least it will take him a very long time to die a natural death. His healing factor, which is sort of his chief mutant power, also keeps him alive. And if you watched the previous two um, Wolverine movies, including the first one, X-Men Origins, which is quite bad and no one should watch it. And so I highly recommend that you don't. Um, but if you watch that one and if you watch James Mangold's first entry in this series, The Wolverine, you know that he's been alive since basically the late 19th century. Uh, so at this point in his life, he's almost 150 years old. And everyone he's loved is dead or dying. Um, and that's what he carries around with him. And that's part of what explains his deep reluctance to get involved with this little girl, uh, who I think we should talk about because I thought her performance was fantastic. Yeah, you know, agreed. She's, she's at the heart of the movie. Absolutely. This, this, uh, the one conceit of the movie that gives nothing away for listeners of ours who haven't seen it is that a new generation of super weaponized uh, mutant X children are being bred and one of them has escaped. Um, Jim, I'll talk about the uh, girl's performance at the center of the movie. Sure. So the, the, the movie is called Logan, but I, I'd say the film is very much about as well. Um, this little girl named Laura, who is one of these mutant children. She's played by, a young actress named Daphne Keene. And what I, I saw the movie twice, actually. I saw it the opening weekend, then I visited some friends, and they wanted to check it out as well. So um, i not intending to, I ended up just watching it twice. And the second time, I really paid attention to her. And what I think is so uh, great about her performance, for the first half of the movie, she's basically silent. She, uh, other than sort of the grunts uh, she makes while in combat, and a parenthetical here, the thing that um, the thing that convinces Logan to um, to at least give her a ride, and much of the movie is taking place in cars and on highways, uh, is that she has a healing factor like him and has uh, adamantium-laced skeleton and claws like he does. So she's sort of a mini Wolverine, uh, you know, in the, in the body of this eleven-year-old. Um, but she, other than other than her grunts and, and yelling while killing people, uh, she is silent. And despite her silence, or you know, because of her silence, I'd say uh, she communicates um, so much emotion and so much curiosity and fear and pain um, as this sort of almost feral child for the first half of the flick. And I thought it was just terrific um more so the second time when i was actually paying more attention to her yeah jamel do you think that it seems like this would be a perfect ending to kind of the logan story um to the story of this character uh wolverine um but it also seems as if uh 
the studio is not going to be able to rest on their laurels with this because it's making a huge amount of money and is uh, extremely popular with critics and audiences. So I was just wondering, I mean, where do you think this story is going to go? Because I just cannot believe this is going to be the end of it. Yeah, that's interesting because um, there are a couple of things happening. The first is that a couple of years back, right, Fox rebooted the whole series with um, X-Men uh, Days of Future Past, which basically like erased the first three movies from the series continuity. Um, but the latest X-Men movie proper, uh, X-Men Apocalypse or whatever it was called, was not very good and was widely panned and sort of a mess. And uh, it's not clear whether Fox will continue forward with that particular iteration of the franchise. Uh, and what it's, that's happening simultaneously what's happening sort of in the other in marvel official marvel studios not the marvel fox collaboration is that marvel studios is very clearly like prepping new generations of heroes for whenever these original actors decide to to hang it up and you see this in the comics too so right now in the comics iron man is a black woman uh captain america was a black guy for a while the hulk is an asian american i mean sort of they're, they're, you can tell, you can see them getting ready for this next generation. And so there's sort of like a template here um, in this, in, in Daphne Keene's character as this like little mini Wolverine um, and uh, some of the other characters in the movie for kind of if they wanted to do a next generation X-Men movie, all the pieces are there. Uh, and I, I don't know what the plan is, but I could see it happening. I do know that um, there is a... a, a the series is called New Mutants, a uh, movie in pre-production. Uh, the New Mutants were a spinoff from the X-Men in the 80s and were kind of like, you know, by this point in the continuity, the original X-Men had gone their separate ways and Xavier was pulling together a new generation of, uh, of mutants to be X-Men. So given that no one knows about the New Mutants as a comic book property other than nerds, there's like space there to, uh, you know, build a new franchise out of the out of the pieces from Logan. This this raises a, a, an interesting question um, to me, which is as as a, as a non fan um, of the franchise, which is you know, or really comic book movies in general. The the I think interesting and at least somewhat daring choice to bring in directors who might be ambivalent about the material because they made their name either in indie movies or or somewhat elevated adult you know, uh, movies aimed at adults, someone like Mangold. And as, as someone who's very fresh to this material, I felt as though I kept picking up Mangold's ambivalence, but, but smart and interesting ambivalence that in one of the ways Isaac, the movie maybe was saturated with grief and regret was this sense that, you know, Mangold was forced to make a hyper-violent, uh, genre picture as someone who maybe um, didn't love the style of hyperviolence that he was working in. There's the interesting moment where they're watching Shane on a hotel television, and it that it's an especially downbeat moment where they seem to be captivated by what's happening on the screen. A golden era Hollywood movie in which good and evil are relatively starkly, you know, opposed against one another. Um, Am I right to think that there might have been some ambivalence on the part of someone like Mangold in making a movie like this, and that's why its t- tone is feels so earned? I mean, that's an interesting theory. I think that that could be true. I mean, Mangold has also made... I mean, he's made some good movies. I thought Copland was pretty good. Um, he also made a terrible Tom Cruise Cameron Diaz action movie called Night and Day, I think. Anyway, um, 
I, I do think what you're the, the phenomenon you're talking about, and Jamel probably has this recall easier at hand than I do, but. I, you know, I remember the guy who directed The Amazing Spider-Man, which was uh, the the sort of first reboot. We're getting a second reboot of the Spider-Man origin story, I think, this year. But the guy who directed The Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, 5 and 3 years ago, was this guy, Mark Webb, who'd made this movie 500 Days of Summer, which was kind of this well-liked independent film. And it was thought, oh, we're going to bring a different sensibility. And then if you watch either of those Spider-Man movies, they're a giant mess. He doesn't know how to direct action. They're completely confused in what they are. So I agree it can work uh, if you bring a different sensibility, but I also think it's a risk. And it seems to have paid off here. But I, I do wonder about that rather than bringing in kind of pros who know how to direct action and know the beats of the genre. On the whole, um, whether it works. I mean, I think most people would say Christopher Nolan, who I mentioned before, was the sort of the most famous choice in terms of doing that. And, you know, at least in my mind, he made one and a half good Batman movies or something. But and then it sort of went off the rails. But, you know, I, I do think that's a that's a hit and miss proposition. Uh, one qu- a quick question before we move on. Logan does not like guns, as he says at one point in the movie, um, but he, he's forced to, uh, you know, gore people um, eye to eye in this hyper-violent and quite intimate fashion, which is really central to the look and style and, you know, kind of theme of the movie. Violence is hand-to-hand and very bloody. He, you know, he essentially pops out these huge metal talons and shoves them into the, you know, soft midsection of his uh, foe. Did anyone else find this movie more violent, not just violent, they all are violent, but more violent and more... um, self-consciously violent than other uh, movies in the genre. Uh, I actually interpreted this as when I saw the marketing and when I noticed the violence as somewhat of a nod to Deadpool. I don't know. I, I assume the the plan for this movie was always to make it somewhat grittier and more violent than most PG-13 superhero movies are. But I also assume after Deadpool, which came out last year and was rated R and is very violent and uh, made a boatload of money and was extremely popular, that studios are feeling like they can push the violence harder with Mm R-rated movies. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, the movie's Logan. It's uh, at a theater very near you. No doubt. Check it out. It's quite well made. All right, moving on. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In 1999, the indie rock band The Magnetic Fields came out with uh, what really has to count as an opus. The 69 Love Songs was a triple CD. It was filled with every conceivable song style from Fleetwood Mac imitation to high school football cheer. Across all pop formats, it was widely received as a masterpiece and then followed, what exactly, a nice enough career in indie pop songcraft and indie stardom. I think it's fair to say that Stephen Merritt, the principal songwriter of the Magnetic Fields, had placed himself under his own shadow. Nearly 20 years later comes 50-song memoir, and Stephen Merritt has stepped out of his own shadow. And as Carl Wilson, Slate's music critic, uh, argues in a wonderful review, he stepped out in his own skin. Carl, how's it going? Hey, Steve. Yeah, um... The the title 50 song memoir, like the title 69 love songs, is, is supremely literal. And so Merritt has just turned 50 in the past couple of years. 
and he's written one song for each year of his life. Um, well, let's get to the arc of that story in a minute. But first, can you pick out a song for us to sample, give our listeners some sense of what this uh, music sounds like? Uh, it's difficult because it crosses so many styles and genres in Merritt's way. But um, I think I might pick um, from the second disc, the 1974 song, um, No, which gives you a little hint about his childhood um, environs a bit and also his pushback against those. We knew Carmel. It's just so perfectly Stephen Merritt. Um, the punchline of no is just beautifully delivered. Carl, let's start here. I mean, I was a huge fan of the 69 Love Songs when it came out. It it, it, it struck me and I think many people as a harbinger of great things to come. And then in a way, it stood sort of alone as this peak in the guy's uh, career. Uh, what is it about this format that seems to liberate him, to give it him, him you know, sort of, writing a kind of gimmick by which you can write not just 10 songs or 20 but but a few dozen what is it about that that you think that maybe gives him momentum and cogency as a songwriter yeah it's kind of a unique factor i can't i can't think of another songwriter of whom you can say that they work best in the like two and a half hour anthology (laughs) form um and I think it's partly that all of the albums since 69 Love Songs, you know, the albums before that were really kind of youthful, exploratory things. They also worked conceptually, but there was definitely sort of a, a more um, dreamy kind of aspect to them. And then things seemed to come into a sharper focus with 69 Love Songs. And the albums since then kind of returning to smaller scale concepts, um, either musical concepts or thematic concepts, all seemed in kind of inevitably thin by comparison. There were always a few great songs on every album, but a lot of the the working out of the conceits started to seem um, a little bit like working in novelty song. And there were a lot of things that seemed kind of throwaway. And now returning to this kind of large canvas and with a, a theme that that has some heft of its own, you know, that had the idea of life overall just like the idea of love overall seems to balance Merritt's tendency to go a little bit too micro and, and twee and clever. Um, and so you get, you get this kind of force. And on top of that, I think this album, even more so than 69 love songs brings um, the power of narrative to bear. You know, you actually follow a story over the course of this two and a half hours, the sort of Gen X, chronological memoir and in some ways also a sort of queer life in the late 20th century memoir um, that gives it a momentum. You know, I think a lot of people do feel, tend to feel that the last disc and a half or so of 69 love songs, your attention starts to drift a little bit, but that doesn't really happen here because you really are, you're kind of watching a movie. You're kind of going like, how's our hero going to fare? Is he going to be okay? Is he going to be happy in the end? There's layers of hidden angst and feeling in a way, right? I mean, there's a play between what he keeps buried and what he brings to the surface um, that his his voice and his writing style both seem suited to. Talk a little bit about 
the role confession has or has or hasn't played in his um, career thus far and how that maybe has changed here? Yeah, I mean, that's really the dramatic thing about this work in the in the line of his work. Um, in many ways, Merritt has always kind of forcefully rejected the idea of confession. And I think that that comes from a couple of sources. On one level, it's um, having grown up with this kind of hippie childhood and at the time of the burgeoning of confessional song in the 70s. Um, a lot of songwriters of his sort of 90s indie vintage back as far away from that as possible. And on top of that, you have um, the way that queer art has always privileged artificiality and constructs of character um, against the idea of some kind of transparent sincerity, I think both as an aesthetic and as a kind of survival strategy. And so you really have Merritt turning against his own history here. Um, and in, in an interesting way, treating autobiography as its own kind of artificial construct. So he plays with that throughout the album. And it's also, you know, Merritt is kind of a famously not particularly social and, and, and kind of doer and cranky seeming personality. And so this kind of like bearing your heart kind of thing is also counterintuitive in terms of, in terms of his kind of presented character. So he's really challenging himself in some ways. And also there's something particularly poignant about someone in middle age kind of taking the mask off, however, tentatively. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, what you feel over the course of the album is um, this sense of this personality, this complex personality coming to terms with himself and trying to sort of in middle age um, contact the sort of more tender and vulnerable part of himself. Um, and in that, that's one of the things that makes it such a compelling listen. I was just curious to what degree this album is sort of self-consciously a response to some of the sort of feelings of criticism or being let down by um, the latest work before this. It's difficult to tell. Um, again, Merritt in interviews is not particularly forthcoming about these things. There are a couple of um, sharp jabs at critics over the course of the, the album. Um at one point, sarcastically remarking about um, critics who think he's too heavily new wave influenced. And in one song, uh, Quotes, which is probably like the most opaque um, song on the album to a non-initiate, um, he talks at angles about a controversy about 10 years ago when um, he got accused of racism by some critics um, for his... Um, for a stray remark he once made at a conference about the song zippity doo and also for the sort of whiteness of the influences that he works with, all of which sort of seemed unfair on a bunch of levels, and he kind of comes back at this with this kind of complaint about the media here. So there's a sense that there's some awareness of that. But interestingly, like this album wasn't even by his account, his own idea, the head of his record company looking for, I think, a, 
a way to come back to the 69 love songs attention suggested autobiography as a theme and Merritt embraced it. So yeah, it's hard to tell exactly what kind of web of motivations are working into it. All right. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we pick a track to go out on? What do you think? Uh, have you seen it in the snow? Yeah, that that that's that song definitely, which is his nine eleven song, um, an ode to New York. Um, that um, that really is just a gorgeous um, and elegant piece. But have you seen it in the snow? You're here. All right. Well, Carl, as always, it's a total pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, hope to see you soon. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Steve. When it snows all night And the world glows white In the morning light Oh, have you seen it in the snow? In a new essay in The New Republic by Phoebe Maltz-Bovey, the author wonders if the accusation of privilege hasn't gone too far, partially as a ritual of public shaming in the age of the internet, uh, partially as a generational fact. She asks whether it has brought about a more just society. Decades of privilege checking corresponds, after all, with decades of rocketing income inequality. Um, Isaac, uh, I have written before me a proposition in my notes that says everyone is more privileged than someone else. Um, and at all times, we're making privilege hierarchies in our heads. I agree with one fundamental premise of the essay that privilege is a fairly universal and insinuating concept. What did you think? I thought it was an interesting essay. I thought she made a couple um, a couple smart points. Um, I, the, the first of which is that essentially transparency about these things does not heal the problem. The idea that if we are more aware of everyone's privilege and we're aware, we're aware of where we supposedly rank on these hierarchies, that in itself does not heal society's problems. That the work to take the the work it takes to do that is is much much harder and more challenging. And I think that that's that that's a nice corrective to this idea that putting these things in the open will, by definition. Um, help help solve them. So that that was my that was my main takeaway from the essay. One of the ways in which I thought she was troubling the notion of privilege is that everyone is conceivably more privileged relative to someone else yeah, and vice I, versa, right? There's no there's no such thing as a rigid privilege hierarchy that's perfectly perspicuous and perfectly lin- linear um that one can place oneself in. So it it tends to be a psychological or rhetorical strategy more than, you know, say an empirical fact of the world. Yeah, I mean I think that this is a complicated issue whenever we're whenever we're talking about anything related to this. I remember once many years ago reading a an essay in the Atlantic Monthly and it was a it was a it was a discussion of how children under divorce psychologically deal with it. And the reviewer of the book said something like, "Well, why are we worried about kids whose parents have gotten divorced when other kids have been abused or molested?" And I always thought that that was not a good way to go about looking at the world to say, "Well, someone else's problems are, you know, worse than yours because, you know, we could be in Nanking in, you know, 1930s or something and things would be even worse than they are in America today, whatever the whatever the subject is. But I also think that there is something to be said that there are degrees of privilege that everyone has and we should be aware of them. So, I mean, it's it's a it's finding a line about these things. There are problems that are worse than other people's problems and there are degrees of, you know, uh, gifts that people were given by, you know, their parents or whatever it is. And those things are different in society and, and we do need to be aware of them. So it is finding a line between those two things. Jamal, what do you, what did you make of this? 
I would basically think the essay is on target, but I don't think it goes far enough in its mm. critique of privileged discourse. Privileged discourse uh, doesn't do much about uh, solving uh, existing inequalities. Uh, it becomes somewhat, uh, you know, solipsistic, with everyone has privilege and everyone accusing each other of privilege, and it's it's very focused on the individual. I think I think that is all right, and and it gets to sort of the problem with privileged discourse, but I'm not sure that uh, this essay really quite diagnoses because the problem, the problem primarily is that the purpose of privileged discourse was to help um, uh, identify, uh, you know, hierarchies in society, hierarchies of gender and race and so on and so forth. Um, uh, but it's, much in the same way that diversity, say, has become this kind of general generic value that doesn't really have much substantive content anymore beyond that isn't it great that people look different. Um, privilege has become this isn't it great that we recognize whatever you know social positioning we have. And I would have pref- I think I would have liked to see a sharper point. Um, on the idea that, or on the fact, not even the idea, that even if you know, privilege discourse is flawed, but these hierarchies really do exist, um, and that they matter not because of our individual relationship to them, but that they matter because they, they shape society and they shape people's life outcomes, and that we do have an obligation to dismantle them. And if Privileged discourse to the problem is that it obscures that that social obligation um, and 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 places the focus on the individual. In the same way, I think that diversity rhetoric obscures that the reason why we even cared about making sure that there is proper representation and that was as a remedy to historic injustice, was as a remedy to material um, material deprivation. Let me try to draw a line, and uh, this may or may not work, but but um, between two different notions of possible notions of privilege, and it builds on what I think is the most, to me, interesting or provocative insight in the essay, which is that privilege checking corresponds completely with the massive rise in inequality, so over the last, say, 20 to 30 years. Um, uh, well, what might that relationship be? On the, on the one hand, when you accuse someone of privilege or when you try to make someone enlightenedly conscientious about their or someone else's level of privilege, you're saying that people did not come to market, did not bring their talents and abilities to market on equal terms. Um, uh, and in that sense, as a power of kind of social enlightenment, it's absolutely necessary because the market paradigm became you know, dominant, it sort of squats over all, it enables some of us while squatting on others of us. But over the last 30 years, it's become utterly dominant. And the pretense of the market is, in theory, the utopian ideal behind the market is that is utter, utterly blind to color, gender, uh, uh, or class in some way. And it was important to constantly put the lie to that construct of the market as sort of perfect weighing measurement of our, you know, the utility that we bring to it. Um, the the downside is that it plays into a kind of market rhetoric, uh, so far as I can tell, because it, it then says we can only measure people 
according to the myth of self-making in a way, which is itself another, I think, kind of heavily free market uh, uh, imbued mythology that someone can in some way or, or someone only gets full responsibility for what value they create if it can be said they did it without an unfair privilege, i.e. in a perfect field of competition, i.e. the free market, right? So to my mind, you're trying to sort of cut that, slice that carefully in a way where you're making people aware of unfair advantages, life advantages. At the same time, I don't think what you want to do is measure value or utility constantly against a personal mythology of pure self-making. I don't quite know that I agree with what you said about the rise in inequality and then going along with privilege. I I, I don't know. I think she makes that point in the essay. I, I'm not sure that that's, that has particularly any, um, that, that that's more than a coincidence. What What I would say is that I think that the point that you make about that we need to be aware of people's privilege, that is different from saying that when someone is making an argument or someone is engaging in, you know, they're writing an article or they're talking with friends or so on, that at that moment, their argument or what they're saying or doing needs to be judged based on the privilege they have. And I think that's an important distinction. The idea that, yes, we need to know that these these rea- the privilege is a reality. People come into the world and become adults and whatever with completely different circumstances. And there are these structures of power that keep people where they are. I'm not sure that that's helpful to constantly talk about when an individual person, whether they be privileged or not privileged, uh, is making an argument when we're judging that argument or when we're thinking about what they themselves are saying. One thing that I was that I was thinking that this essay made me think about is that I remember in the New Republic, actually, uh, three or four months ago, the same week, two different articles appeared by different writers. And one of them was essentially saying, um, you know, these white people who voted for Donald Trump, um, they're not privileged. They are poor. They've been screwed over by capitalism and neoliberalism, and they are not privileged, et cetera, et cetera. We need to have sympathy for them, even though they've elected this racist maniac. And the other article was a literary piece, and it said all white people, essentially, I'm not quoting exactly, but all white people have great privilege. And it is interesting to me that you have coming from people on the left, these two arguments almost simultaneously. And I do think they contradict each other. Both of them seem like together they combine to make kind of an interesting cultural moment about how we think about privilege. Yeah, I mean, what's I, I think those those dueling articles get to the heart of the problem with privilege discourse, right? That like just the word privilege implies a certain amount of security, right? Like material security, um, social security, uh, so on and so forth. That a lot of people who are designated as privilege holders don't actually have. On the other, it is the case that, for example, uh, uh, low-income white Trump voters will or do have a certain amount of security from the ethno-nationalist policies of a Trump administration. So they're not, their families aren't going to be deported. They won't be stopped. Uh, insofar that they're traveling, like leaving the country, they won't be stopped at the border. Um, they won't face the kind of uh, suspicion of non-whites that the Trump administration has brought to national policy. And so not since they are privileged, but like privilege doesn't really, it, it's not really the right word for that, right? Um, or at least I don't think it's a 
entirely helpful word. I think what we're trying to identify here, and I'm not sure we have the language for it here, um, at least among, uh, at least in mainstream conversation, and I'd say very specifically among uh, the white left, is this idea of uh, of race hierarchy that these these Trump voters, for example, may not have much material in the way of material privilege, but they do occupy a spot in a hierarchy. Uh, that spot is higher than others uh, within that hierarchy, and that they have material interests tied to their position in that hierarchy. And so, yeah, one thing you can see very clearly throughout American history is that like white people across class lines um, often act politically to preserve the salience of their whiteness within society. To note that isn't to say that um, someone does not deserve sympathy for their material deprivation, but it is to point out that uh, they have particular interests that run counter to other interests that we might also hold. So if you believe and racial egalitarianism, then yeah, there's a bit of a problem um, when some prospective allies for your economic program are resistant to racial egalitarianism in a meaningful way. Um, that's what I think we're trying to identify here. And I, I, I just think that privilege discourse obscures this so much and leads to odd places where, for example, you're arguing that because a group of people are materially deprived, therefore they bear no responsibility for their decision to uphold uh, violent race hierarchies. Mm, that was terrific. All right, well, here I'll insert the fairly obvious observation that a rarity for this program, it's a panelist of uh, three men. Among the privilege filters you can place on reality, of course, is gender. Um, so uh, clearly the conversation was a different kind of conversation because of that. Um, was Is privilege exactly the right word to describe that? You can come tell us at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. All right, well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. Jamel, what do you have? So the first segment we spent talking about Logan and James Mangold, and sort of after I saw Logan, I was so impressed with the film that I decided to go watch Copland, which I had never actually seen before. And uh, Copland is great. I'm, I'm not really breaking any news there. Uh, but I think it's great. It's useful. It was useful for me to watch after seeing Logan because I can sort of see um, more of Mangold's sort of directorial interest uh, and in particular, uh, uh, with Kaplan, which stars Sylvester Stallone as a uh, the, the sheriff of a town um, basically built by cops, houses cops in New York City. Uh, I think there's something similar happening there of uh, choosing, you have an actor who very much embodies kind of hyper-violence um, in a role uh, that is uh, saturated with a kind of wariness. And, and I thought it was interesting watching that, um, not as a contrast, but sort of like kind of helping me understand uh, Mangold's choices in Logan. And it's also just, a, it's a terrific film. Um, I was really impressed by it. I watched it with my wife. My wife, who hates Sylvester Stallone, came out of it like, you know, I can't believe this guy can actually act. Um, it was, it was, I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already. Copland's a great movie. It really is. I totally agree. Um, it's a minor triumph, and Stallone is fantastic in it. Um, Isaac, what do you have? 
Um, so I know there's a new uh, Kong movie out, uh, which uh, I have not seen yet and uh, has been getting some good reviews, however. But I did go back and watch um, the 2005 Peter Jackson version of King Kong, um, which made a lot of money at the time, but I think was seen as somewhat of a disappointment and uh, not entirely incorrectly. The first hour of the movie is is almost unwatchably boring and uh, it's way, 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 way too long. But the the whole middle section of the movie, which is about ninety minutes, is uh, which I just rewatched on on television, is uh, about as good movie entertainment as I think I've ever seen. I think it ranks up there with uh, the truly great Spielberg movies, um, the, those types of Spielberg movies, such as the first and third Indiana Jones movie, um, things like that. Jaws. Um, I think it's. Uh, it really is Hollywood at, at its absolute best. Even the fact that the movie is overlong, I, I really do think it's worth checking out. And it also has a just fantastic performance by Naomi Watts in a role that that could have easily gone to someone who was not interested in particularly acting or the character could have been written in such a way that it didn't need an actress. And she is just fantastic. And I, I, I understand why the movie was seen as a disappointment, but there's really some incredible, incredible stuff in there. And, um, I, uh, I recently, um, reread a very long essay in the London review of books that came out last year. It's called apartheid's last stand. And it's by a man named Jeremy Harding who writes frequently for the London review of books. It's about Angola after independence and the civil war that happened there, uh, in the last 10 years or so of the cold war where the Americans, the South Africans, the Russians, the Cubans were all involved. And, um, the book, the, the piece is the length of a very short book. It's over 14,000 words, but it's one of the best single things I've ever read about the cold war and the different things that we were doing and the Russians were doing and the different, um, ethical and, um, non, non-ethical, uh, considerations involved and, the way it takes in different perspectives and the way it shines a light on some of the alliances of that period is is simply stunning. And uh, it uh, I, I don't know much about Angola, and I assume many people do not either. And it's uh, it's it's an absolutely stunning piece of work. Apartheid's Last Stand, it's called. So uh, this week I'm going to endorse an essay in the Aeon uh, online magazine uh, written by Adam Frank, who's an astronomy professor at Rochester and is a... Uh, uh, contributor of one kind or another to NPR. It's a terrific essay about the about the problem of consciousness relative to um, physics and what we know about physics and whether or not the fact that humans are conscious can be thought of as a purely scientific problem using the current paradigm of physics. And he makes a brilliant point that I'd never heard anyone make exactly, which is that we still tend to think a little bit, um, almost almost with a kind of folklore attitude towards the physical world as inherited from Newton, which is just a bunch of billiard balls or physical objects kind of bouncing off of one uh, one another in a law-obedient way. And how can we ever in- insert what we as you know mentally endowed creatures do into that scheme? And you can't really. And so this generates over and over again this sort of sterile problem of philosophy, which is what is consciousness and how does it relate to the physical universe? And he makes, in some ways, the quite simple point was that when quantum physics emerged in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you really lost that Newtonian worldview almost completely. I mean, you have to 
you have to be applying a very crude metaphor to the quantum reality to think of it as little billiard balls bouncing off of one another. And in fact, it's obviously much more about you know waves and 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 semi non material forces, but also probability. And he he's someone who actually knows the history of physics and exactly what Schrodinger and Heisenberg contributed to it. And he, he says I, I, he can't answer, and no one can answer what human consciousness is relative to this quantum layer of reality. But we're going to have to shift our paradigm so seriously in order to assimilate human consciousness to science. But that paradigm shift has started already with um, quantum physics. And it sounds preposterous, I know, but it actually is a beautifully written essay targeted at the layperson. And in addition to that, I want to um, endorse the Courtney Barnett song, Depressed In, which I cannot stop listening to. It's totally bewitching. Isaac, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And good luck with the new podcast. I'm very psyched to listen to it. Jamel, as always, a total pleasure. hope you come back on soon. No, my pleasure. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Isaac Chotner and Jamel Bowie, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon. And I see the handrail in the shower, a collection of those canisters for coffee, tea, and flour, and a photo of a young man in a van in Vietnam. And I can't think of floorboards anymore, whether the front room faces south or north. And I wonder what she bought it for.